Thank you, Jacob, and welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. Kurt Parker, if you'd like, uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I appreciate uh, Jacob and the band leading us at a time of introspection and worship. Those words that we say become things that we live and believe. We began a study a number of months ago in Paul's letters to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then we'll move on into Titus. It's been a rich study for us. It is an actual letter written to Timothy to read to the church, and when you think about it in that way, it becomes very, the Bible becomes alive in very real sense. And of course, the things that were important in the church then are still important to the church now, which is why the Lord has preserved that for us. And so we're going to look there as we moved into 1 Timothy 1, we saw a number of the issues that were going on, false teachers teaching things incorrectly, a false gospel incorrectly uh, explained, and then secret knowledge and all these kinds of things that are just foolishness. And so then Paul moves into chapter 2. And he begins to talk about corporate prayer and guidelines for public worship in general, corporate prayer specifically. And so that helps us take notice, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the reason for the letter is so people would know how to conduct themselves in the household of faith, which is the church. So again, the authority is there to teach us what to do. Obviously, we can't do whatever we want to do. And so these things have become very instructive for us. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2, read through verse 8. That's our section under our current examination today. Look there if you would. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. You can find that around you. Just read in in the copy of God's Word that you normally read and memorize each day. I'll give you a verse cues and we'll stick together. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to lift up and pray, holding, hand, holding up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Stop right there. We saw there were some very important things here concerning corporate prayer that should get our attention. I shared with you uh, that as I read this section uh, several weeks ago to prepare for this time of teaching through it, it became very convicting to me that perhaps my prayer time was not modeling the corporate requirements that the Lord had uh, set up for us. And so, as is our habit, we began to pull some important principles out of these passages, not, of course, for academic purposes, but so that we can incorporate them into public worship and right on down into our prayer closet, because that's the whole issue of teaching this way, verse by verse, through the Bible, and that's so that you can know how to incorporate that for your own life. Again, as you read the Bible daily, which I hope that you were doing that this week, uh, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Still applies today. That's the way we learn the Bible. And beloved, as we think about maturity in the faith, maturity in the faith is not necessarily marked by gray hair, nor is it uh, excluded because you're young. Maturity in the faith comes as a direct result of taking what the Bible says, understanding what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies, and applying it. And the more that you do that on a daily basis, the more mature you become. And so that's what we want to do here, and that's why I model that here. So you go home, you read the Bible every day. You don't read it just for quantity. You read it for quality. You, become, you begin 
to become aware that there are things that are put here for a purpose. There's a reason why they were recorded. It's still good for the church today. It's supposed to make its way into our lives, and that's our habit. So let's review some of the some of these um, principles that we picked out that have to do with prayer, because this is uh, God's instructions to His church. And let's just review them briefly. First principle we noticed in in uh, as we began. And just so obvious, I think, as we look at the first four verses, is that corporate prayer is to be expansive and expanding. I think you can see that pretty easily. Perhaps you saw right away, you're just like, wow, we're supposed to pray for all men everywhere, for kings and all who are in authority, that we might live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. Have I even prayed that at all? And so again, that begins to take notice in our own life how we are to put that into practice. And my prayer for you this week was that you began to see your own prayer life take on these attributes. My prayer particularly for you this week was that your prayer life became, began to become more expanded and more expansive, that you began to pray in this way. It's hard to change bad habits, and we pointed out some of the bad habits that people get into in prayer time, and I think that uh, this addresses those issues. Number two, we saw as we looked through that part um, that corporate prayer has some required elements. Uh, it's not just whatever you want to do. There are aspects of prayer that give us a boldness and direction in the types of requests we make, and we went through them at length. I won't do that again. I'll just give you some highlights of what we looked at. First thing we saw, though, was entreaties. Uh, the word entreaties has to do with expressions of our needs. That's not foreign to us. We're used to coming to the Lord in prayer and expressing our needs, and so we, don't, we understand that pretty clearly. But I think uh, in, in, even in a greater extent, we have to understand our, and recognize our own destitution. That's sometimes what we don't understand as well. We're, still, we're pretty satisfied with who we are, perhaps what we've accomplished, things that we can do, those kinds of things. But we come to the Lord recognizing that we need everything, not just God added in, but apart from Him, we'd have nothing that we need. So that part of required prayer, I think, is more attitude. And you're going to see that all the way through. A lot of attitude brought to bear here. And then the word prayers, it's a word we're familiar with. It's the most common word used, but it has to do with it actually means conversation with God. Its emphasis, though, is on worship and reverence. We understand conversation with God, but we probably don't understand as well the worship and reverence that's supposed to go along with it. And we saw last time, understanding what prayer means gives us some understanding of and insight to some other passages, particularly in Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, teach us to have conversation with God. Now, that prayer there has taken on a life of its own, which is unfortunate because that's not the intent of the prayer is to pray the Lord's Prayer, but instead to understand the dynamic that's supposed to be a part of it. Pray then in this way. So, Jesus is affirming, yes, this is a question you need answered. Pray then in this way, our Father who's in heaven Holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Do you see the worship and reverence that you begin prayer with? We're so used to just kind of waltzing in, and I, I joked with our congregation last week, we don't know how to deal with royalty. Uh, we wouldn't know how to go into King Charles's court and speak to him as we should. And we wouldn't be able to just walk into any human king's court and do whatever we want. It should not be a surprise to us that the Lord gives us instruction. And when His disciples ask how they should pray, the first recognition is, God, You are in heaven and Your name is holy. And it doesn't have to be that exact language, but it certainly has to be that exact attitude. And it's Your kingdom that we want to come. We're interested in seeing Your kingdom advance, not ours, and Your will to be done. And as I told last uh, service, I said, when I pray that, start with me. 
I mean, if your will is going to be done, let me be the first one who does it. You know, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Specifically said, this is my will for you. So what's that mean when you read that? That means it needs to be incorporated into your life. If that's God's will for you, you should do it. You know, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what that perfect will of God is. You want to know what God's will is? Well, begin to transform your mind by the word of God. See, those are God's will. So when you pray, you really want, and that really changes the way we structure our prayer, regardless of the issue at hand. It might be a health scare. It might be a relationship issue, a financial issue. It might be whatever. It can be a, any number of things. But whatever it is, what we really want is what the Lord wants. Because we can't see all the sides, can we? We only see the immediate need, and so we're praying specifically for that need. Lord, please heal them from this disease. Please uh, deliver them from this difficult time they're in. Please resolve this marital conflict. We can see what's going on there, and we can pray for that. But what we don't know is what the Lord is doing through all of that. Through that difficult time in health, He might be bringing an example to people who never would have come to faith in the life of that individual, in the suffering that they're in, and they may come to faith. And is that the Lord's option to do that with us? I think we can learn that from a number of places in the Scriptures, that that is precisely what the Lord might be doing. He might be bringing that individual through a, a testing time. He might be bringing chastening on their life, and we're praying, Lord, please just rid them of all this stuff. See, that's the problem with the prosperity gospel. Lord, just give them all these things, and we, we, we claim victory over, over disease in Jesus' name. Well, it may be in Jesus' name that the disease is there so that he looks or she looks more towards the Father, and that chastening is there, and we're praying for it all to be gone. You see, we only know a very, very small part of the reality of life. And so when we pray in this way, we pray in a conversation with God with worship and reverence, because we recognize we don't understand all of this, but the Lord does. And ultimately, we want His will. And of course, John 14 plays a part in that, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do. So we come to the end of that prayer, and we, we can say, in Jesus' name, because we're praying for His will and for His sake and everything under His kingdom we'd like to see happen. See, it's not a blanket statement, you pray in Jesus' name, I'm claiming this in Jesus' name. It's foolishness, okay? The Lord's not obligated to provide you anything you claim in Jesus' name. What we're supposed to do is bring our own desires and everything underneath the name of Jesus, and whatever He desires, that's what we want and His name to be glorified. So you can see right away, it revitalizes, it begins to revitalize your prayer life, and isn't directed necessarily to Berean, although it trickles down to us. It was directed to Ephesus, where they were having a problem with corporate worship, but I, I think you can see very clearly that the church, many drastically have got off the mark as it comes to corporate worship, particularly in this area, and there'll be more as we work our way through this chapter. So, we see that the first thing we're supposed to do is have entreaties, prayers, and this is not in any significant order, but I think, you know, coming before him with, a need, with our needs and our destitution and recognizing that is not a bad place to start. And then having conversation with God, which includes our reverence and our worship. And then thirdly, petitions, which is falling in with a person. Your, your translation may have intercessions, which kind of makes us think we're supposed to pray for other people, which we are, but he already said we're supposed to pray for other people. The idea really is, the Greek word has to do with falling in closely with someone. So the idea then is not only coming in worship and reverence, but also understanding you can draw intimately close to God and speak to Him as a close confidant or a, a, the close counselor for to whom you would reveal your innermost thoughts. So uh, the most uh, innermost details of our life we're supposed to bring. And then fourthly, we saw thanksgivings. That's the expression of gratitude 
and gratefulness, which is absent many times in our prayer time. I've, I've encouraged you many times. If you only had today what you gave thanks to the Lord for yesterday, what would you have? So that begins to conform our prayer life into a model that is pleasing to the Lord. And we're going to see that in just a minute. This is pleasing to God. And if that's our interest, then these are the things that begin to make our way into our time of prayer. And then we saw principle number three as Paul continues to correct corporate worship. And that is corporate prayer has some required objects. Uh, not just some elements, but some objects. Look there in verse one. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings, which we just saw, be made on behalf of, here it is, all men and for kings and all who are in authority. So we broke that down very briefly. Uh, I'll give it to you today. All men, we saw by this instruction that in prayer time, we can't pray too widely. That was my prayer for you specifically this week, that your prayer time would not be narrow and close to you, that it would begin to widen out. And the idea then is if every believer is beginning to take this on and follow this command, it's possible then for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, if they're praying very, very widely about a lot of things everywhere, all men everywhere in all places, you get pretty far out from yourself, right? And so it's possible that nothing would be left unprayed for. That article you read, that, that uh, news report, that flash, that little video, whatever, you begin to pray for that situation about those people particularly, and then not just that, for kings, so those who are in the foundations of power, and then all who are in authority. And so I think the first thing that's on our mind, particularly as those who, who desire to walk in righteousness, is we don't like wickedness to rule. And so I think you can, you can resonate with the fact that it's, it's angering to us sometimes to see foolishness and lies spoke from high places because that just brings sorrow and disappointment and hardship on everybody, doesn't it? When wickedness is made into law, people suffer because law, God's laws are not burdensome. They were given to us because he knows what we need, and things are excluded because he knows that brings harm to us. But the idea here is that we're supposed to pray for them. So I ask you today, did you pray for the salvation of Joe Biden today and for Kamala Harris or this week at any point? Because they were certainly in the news. And Nancy Pelosi and her husband, who almost got, went into eternity, did you pray for them and their salvation? That's precisely what we're talking about. And so, again, conforming our prayer model to the one the Scripture modeled for us and not just the one that we think we should do. So all men, and then for kings and for all who are in authority. And we see then the Lord has then instructed us in the church to assist the ruling of those who are in authority by this type of prayer. That's the only thing it could be, because if you look at the next part of verse 2, that's precisely what he says. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So what's that mean? Well, just this, principle number four, corporate prayer has a focus, and that first focus listed here is the church. And we saw a couple of ways that that's expressed. First of all, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So what's the connection? Here it is. Prayer here for those in authority and kings and all who are in authority everywhere implicitly asks for peaceful conditions in which Christians could freely live out exemplary lives. I think you can understand that. You're praying for those in authority and rulers and every, everywhere and every place so that Christians can live in a way and a place where they can exercise Christianity in such a way that it makes the biggest impact. And that makes a pretty significant point, doesn't it? I mean, we wonder about that. We wonder in other nations what can be done. Well, there could be prayer, first of all. And that word tranquil has to do with the absence of outward disturbances. So we understand that. Maybe you're bothered a little bit by what's going on in our nation today. I am. I'm concerned about the direction, our foreign policies, all kinds of things that come into my mind as I think about what's going on here. But my first reaction needs to be that we pray that there's an opportunity for tranquility. What's that? It just means 
the absence of outward disturbances. And then the other part is quietness, and that has to do with personal peace. So to be at peace on the inside. So two things, the church is to pray for all men everywhere and for all leaders and those in authority so that the outward disturbances can be minimized and we can be at peace on the inside because when outward disturbances are maximized, it's less likely that you're at peace on the inside. And that makes sense to us, I think. And so the absence of turmoil, the absence of worry, and since believers have to be subject to rulers who can make life difficult for everyone, but especially for the church, as we saw during COVID, prayer is necessary to overrule them. And in that sense, believers may be spared from some outward trouble and inward worry and unease, and they are additionally to pray for that those who call themselves believers will conduct themselves, catch this, in all godliness and dignity. So there's twofold in the church. First of all, that we can, because of our prayer for rulers and leaders and all that, we can have tranquility and quietness, but we're also supposed to pray for the church that the church will conduct itself in godliness and dignity. Two words, godliness, which just, as we've already indicated, this is this vertical manner of life in comparison with the Word of God. So we're praying for the church that all people walk in line with what the Word of God says. So there's a correct alignment with us and our life and what we say we believe with what we're doing. Godliness has to do with God's standard. And then dignity is the horizontal part of behavior. This has to do with what others see. The church will walk circumspectly in line with what the Word of God says, and then keeping a testimony pure before the watching world. Godliness, dignity. So how we're acting out wherever the people can see us, that has to be in line and, and doesn't tarnish the testimony. So that's a horizontal part of behavior, and that's what entitles believers then to respect from people around them. As we said last week, the argument, the best argument for Christianity and against Christianity is Christianity, namely the way we live it. And I think all of us could think about bad examples of Christianity, particularly early in our life, that made us question whether it was real or not. And that's the issue. We conform ourselves to what the Word of God says. Now, as we think about this, this expanding, expansive type of prayer, there's an illustration I didn't get to last week, and I want to share it with you. It's pretty important, and I think that you'll, you'll appreciate this. But uh, many of you might not be old enough to remember this, but many believe it was this type of believing prayer, this expansive, expanding prayer for leaders and all who are in authority and rulers that brought down the Berlin Wall. In May 1989 in Leipzig, in the historic St. Nicholas Church, where, by the way, the Reformation was introduced exactly 450 years before that, trapped in East Berlin, a small group began to meet in one of the church's side rooms to read the Sermon on the Mount and to pray for peace. The group expanded and moved to a larger room and finally began to meet in the church's main auditorium, which began to fill up. Alarmed, the communist authorities sent officials to attend. They threatened the gatherers and temporarily jailed some of them. On prayer nights, they would block off the city's nearest Autobahn exit to make it difficult to get to the church. And about six months later, on October 9, 1989, some 2,000 individuals packed into the church to pray for peace, and another 10,000 gathered outside. And November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall began to come down. Now, we all know the part that Reagan played in this demise and, and um, the political reforms inside the Soviet bloc, 
But that escalating pressure from people in Eastern Europe, like we see here, the prayer particularly, and particularly the confusion, and this is one that always, always stymies historians, there was a confusion on what was supposed to happen about opening the wall. An actual message went out to open the wall so visitors could come in and out, and nobody knows why that went out. But those don't, to my in my opinion, and especially in light of what we see in prayer here, to be coincidences. That that confusion and then that release and then the opening and then the tearing down of the wall uh, was orchestrated in a very real sense by people who prayed an expansive, expanding type of prayer for peace for men in authority and all who rule, that they could live quiet and tranquil lives. And that makes perfect sense to us as we think about um, these things. They don't appear to be coincidences. This just appears to be God honoring the prayers he's asked specifically for his people to pray to make entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men and all leaders and all in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, that the church could do what it's supposed to do and that there could be peace on the inside and tranquility on the outside. Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So mighty walls of unbelief can fall. We saw 1 Corinthians 10. Our weapons are not weapons of the flesh, but they're spiritual and mighty. That those things that are thrown up against the knowledge of the Lord can be thrown down. So, in all submission to God's will, a desire for His purposes to be accomplished, of course, not naming it and claiming it, but just saying, Lord, we'd like to live in peace and tranquility, let the church function like it should, and the Lord is quick to answer those kinds of prayers when we do it in a model that we see here. And then we saw, ultimately, the focus of prayer, as we just said, is on the Lord. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, look there. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So praying and living this way is pleasing to God. Again, we get to a point where this is pleasing to God, this is God's will, uh, this is what you should do in order to know God's will. These are all just very obvious ways that we respond obediently to things that we see are obvious in the Word of God. Praying in this way is pleasing to God. So here's the question. Do you want to please God in worship? Well, in corporate worship, it has to conform this way. In private worship, as it trickles down to your prayer closet, do you want to be pleasing to God? Then you begin to conform your prayers to an expanding, expansive type of prayer life, which takes in the things the Lord has said to take in, in the way He said to do it. And this gives us our next principle of corporate prayer, and I think about the overriding purpose for prayer, which is related here. Look there, if you would, um, in verse 3. And this is principle number 5, Praying in this way, if you're a note taker, you can find it on the back of your bulletin. Praying in this way not only is pleasing to God, but it is God's desire. That not only is it good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, and that is eminently important to those who call on His name. Our purpose, our ultimate focus in corporate prayer is revealed to us in God's desire. And what is God's desire? Look at verse 4. Who desires then that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see how we're moving in prayer? We're beginning to pray for all men everywhere and all people who, all the leaders and who are in authority, right? And so that we can live this peaceful, tranquil life and the church can do what it's supposed to do in all godliness and, and, and in peace. See, and, and these are things that we're supposed to pray and it moves in this direction. What move, direction does it move in? Principle number six, praying and living this way helps fulfill the great commission. Praying for all men everywhere, praying for those in authority, so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. These are all accomplished in the salvation of the lost. Which is why I asked you, did you pray for the salvation of those in leadership in our country? 
Imagine what can happen if the, if the true church began to pray in that way. Not that we're somehow commanding God to do something for us in Jesus' name. We're just praying in the way God has designed it to pray, uh, designed us to pray corporately and privately and see what the Lord will do with that. See. As long as we're saying God be with them and, you know, uh, just general kind of close to our close to our chest kinds of prayers, you know, be with grandma's bunions and the guy who's got cancer and all that kind of, you know, we're, we haven't moved past even the church building, let alone out into the community and out into the state and out into the nation and out into the world. We're just right here all the time, right here all the time. And I get that. We've got needs and they're like right in the forefront of our mind. But again, as we see the model, we've got to move past that, don't we? It's not that we are excluding those things, but in addition to those things, we've got to make sure these other things are included because they have a purpose it takes our mind off our own self and our own needs and what we don't have and all that kind of stuff, and it begins to move towards the purpose of God's intentions for the world. And it's certainly possible, and I think you can understand this and perhaps relate to it, as we observe how the church in general has prayed and currently prays and lives through the centuries, that the slow progress of the gospel could be due to prayerlessness more than anything else. Do, do you understand I think that as the more I read this and the more I understand this as it's connected to the wider understanding of Scripture and God's purposes for the world, I can certainly see that to be the case. So let's fix that, at least at Berean, okay? We can't do anything about what everybody else does, but we can certainly, if, if, if 1 Timothy 3 says, this is how you're to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the church, and then he gives us some instructions, I think we should model it. Don't you think? So in every small group, every time we meet together, every Sunday school class, whenever we pray, we begin to expand out our prayer life. And we teach our little ones that, and they, we bring them up this next generation of people who are thinking further out than their own immediate needs. And we're getting in line with God's purposes, and we're looking at the long version of history and realize God is a saving God, and He's always been a saving God, and He's working all the world's history out for His own purposes, and we're right here in this little section of the rope, right? And this is where we're supposed to be praying and working, and God's got an intent for all of this, and He's got to bring the society to a certain point so we can work it all out. And that becomes our prayer, see, that we just get in line with what He wants us to say and do. Now, I think um, this next part, verse 3, I, I want to let this passage speak for itself. This is good, it says, and acceptable in the sight of God. It says, verse 4, who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to let the passage speak for itself. We're not going to get into a discussion here of, of God's election and, and volition. There are other places in Scripture that deal with that, and, and we've dealt with some of those things. But the simple statement of the passage is Paul's focus, praying for the salvation of men and rulers and leaders, okay? And so... Um, I think that uh, this is an issue that we have to really kind of come to grips with. And what we have here as we think about this passage, and just in general, we, ha we have a revealing of the heart of the Father who brought about the incarnation of Christ and Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's the heartbeat of God. The saving God who from the start looked on a fallen world and realized even from the foundations of the world that Christ would have to be slain to redeem them, see? And this is the heartbeat of God. God doesn't desire any to be, any to be lost, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. You see the heartbeat of God here. And that becomes, that's what, that's what the passage, it's Timothy wants uh, the Ephesus church to have that heartbeat again. 
Not this isolated if you had the secret knowledge and, you know, just entertain yourself and whatever. Not that, okay? Not that. See, we see it in Jesus' prayer. He asks for forgiveness for those who are crucifying him, right? He's praying for those who are in authority at that point over him because he submitted himself. We're praying for the soldiers who are crucifying, the Jews who turned him over to them. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, we see it right there, don't we? Even in the midst of hardship, praying for God's purposes and the, and the salvation of those who are in authority. We see it with this conversation of the thief crucified beside him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. So this is the divine desire which informed and drove Paul to engage in worldwide missions. See, And by example, then, it's supposed to be our desire, right? And I think we can see that very clearly. That's just obvious. It's our task to preach the gospel universally to every tongue and people, regardless of class or rank, to pray for all men everywhere, all rulers and all who are in authority, all leaders for their salvation, and to be about the work of sowing the seed of the gospel on a regular basis. See, to answer obediently, mark it, as a good soldier fighting the what? The good fight of faith. Remember, we talked about what does it mean to fight the good fight of faith, and we came right down to, as we looked at all the passages that deal with it, it's obedience. In the issue that you know you're to obey, as you obey, and the more consistently you do it, the more consistently you're fighting the good fight, the more faithful you actually are. We misuse that a lot in, 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 uh, in funerals, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Are you sure? I knew this person, right? I mean, I'm not judging in specifically of what his motives are, but listen, life has actions connected to it. There's impact from what you do, see? You want to fight the good fight and be considered faithful by the Lord? Then be obedient in everything He's told you to do, everything you understand, you see? Very, very important. That's the answer of a good soldier fighting the good fight of faith. You know, Jesus, from His own lips, tells us so clearly, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Everything I've commanded you. There's discipleship connected to that, beloved. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do we have to pray, God be with us? Not according to that passage. Why? Because he's already said he's going to be with us, right? So go out and do it. Take the gospel to every nation. It's our mission to proclaim what God wants us to proclaim. And this, again, is what it means to fight the good fight. Life-saving was Paul's business, and it's our business. And then our seventh really driving principle as we look at this for corporate prayer in this way is it puts God's work on display. When you begin to pray in this way, you begin to put God's work on display. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Everything works and rests on what God has done. So let's break that down a little bit. So he says there is one God. It's reflective certainly of God's nature as one God. Uh, There is only one God. God is one It certainly takes in the understanding of the Trinity, but I don't think that's the focus here as much as it is to clarify that this idea that all the gods that are worshipped are really the same God, it takes that idea and shows it to be false. It's a very common, it's very common today, and if you were here last week when Daniel spoke, or a week before when Daniel spoke, he gave you a lot of those statistics that many who call on the name of the Lord, many who profess to be believers, would also say that there are many paths to salvation, and everybody who's on a path is probably on the same one. How is that possible? It's just bad teaching in churches that people come out of a church and think somehow, somehow God's not the only God and there's plenty of different ones and that he manifests himself in all these false religions. 
It's reflective of God's nature as one. So the idea that the God the Muslims worship is the same God, or the God of the Buddhist temple, or every temple that has a reigning deity, or, or that they really all get you to the same place. You're all kind of on the same path. That, of course, is utterly false. And Paul will clarify which God is the God in a moment. There are gods from all over the world designed by men, but the Scriptures say they're not gods at all. 1 Corinthians 8 says they're idols, and an idol is nothing. So if you want to spend your life worshiping nothing, that's your privilege. But it's folly to think that that's the same God as the God Jehovah, the God of all creation. There's only one God, mark it. And this is how it ties to our passage. You need to catch this. If there were many gods and many paths and many ways to salvation, there'd be no need for evangelism because then everybody already would be on a path that's going to lead to the same place. Do you see? So if Paul's focusing in on evangelism, it's important for him to say, by the way, we're evangelizing for the one true God, not all these paths. In Isaiah 44, 6, God said it very clearly, as clearly as it could be said, I am the first and the last, and besides me, there is no other. So that covers all the ground. Deuteronomy 17, the nations sacrifice to demons. Psalm 106, 37, the nations sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. They're still doing it now. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, the nation sacrificed to and worshiped demons. So don't be deceived by any of the ridiculous nonsense that's telling you that there's multiple paths and God is in all those paths. Jesus basically says the same thing as Paul repeats here in Mark 12, 29. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Why? Well, you can give your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength to God because there's nobody else to give it to. No matter what you may imagine, there's only one. So you love that one God with all the capacity that you have to love and you worship and mark it obey. The universal need of the gospel is bound up then in the oneness of God. In Romans chapter 3 verse 29, as Paul begins to explain the gospel, he says this, is the God the God of the Jews only? Is he not only the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles don't get to bring their own God to the table. He's the same God. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. There's only one God. Therefore, all men must come to the same God. Therefore, all men must, mark it, hear it in the same way. And so we're instructed to pray for all men, and that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now, let's look at the next part of verse 5, the beginning of verse 6, and we're going to move into our time around the Lord's table. And I'm going to move down there to get a little closer to you. This is a great thought that brings really into focus the whole issue of celebrating the table in, the, in a worthy manner. And if we think about this, we look at verse, um, the end of verse 6, if you would. It says, it begins, it says, for there's one God, and then it says this, there is one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That just seems so obvious to us, doesn't it? I mean, for those who've been in the church a long time, we understand what that says. But Paul is redirecting the ship uh, of the Ephesian church that's off base and has taught the wrong gospel and has false teachers constantly teaching and men not growing and not understanding the basics. And so Paul is bringing the church back to the basics and redirecting the church. There's n- there is not only one God, he says, but one mediator between God and men. So, beloved, how many mediators are there? One. 
one God, one mediator, one way of salvation. Therefore, we pray for the whole world. God wants the whole world to be saved, and the only way they can be saved is through that one mediator to that one God. You see? In Job chapter 9, and I've read this to you before, it's one of my favorite chapters as I get through Job each year. It illustrates perfectly for us the need for this mediator. Job is summing up his time as he's struggling to understand God's purpose for his life, and he didn't realize that he was a heavenly example. The Lord was using him to make a heavenly point with Satan, that there was somebody who you could take away pretty much everything, a wealthy person who lost pretty much everything except his life, and that he wouldn't curse God. And, and the Lord was making a point. Job didn't know this. Job was struggling with all this, understanding God in the middle of hardship. And then, and he wants to bring his case to the Lord and say, you know, not knowing the whole thing, uh, why is it that you brought me thus? Why am I in this position? Uh, why have you crushed me? You know, I've served you, that kind of thing. The same types of questions that all of us in immaturity ask the Lord. And he says this, and in this case, we understand his position. He says this for, he is not a man that I may answer him that we may go to court together, and now mark this helpless cry, he says, there is no umpire between us, listen, who may lay his hand upon us both. Can I ask you a question? Who answered that helpless cry? Who came and can lay their hand on us both? You know, Job didn't know what he was saying then. He was carried along to say that, as, as the New Testament tells us. He didn't realize he was talking to us. He didn't understand he was talking centuries later. He didn't know that he was talking about the Messiah. He was calling on what God had already determined in ages past before the foundation of the world was actually going to be the case. Jesus is the go-between. He's the mediator. He's the one who intervenes between the two for purposes of restoring peace and friendship, and there's only one mediator, only one, beloved, okay? I mean, you don't go through angels. You're not going to get there through saints. You don't go through Mary. There's one mediator. He was always God. He took on flesh, became in the likeness of men. He's the perfect God-man, and as such, he takes God and man and brings them together. Christ Jesus is a mediator. How did he do it? How did he put God who saves work on display. How did he bring the two together? Look at the next part. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Just very straightforward, right? Paul's redirecting the ship. It's way off base. The gospel hasn't been presented. Here it is. You're going to pray in this way. You're going to pray for all men. You're going to pray for leaders and all in authority. And you're going to pray because there's one God and one mediator, and you want to make sure he's put on display. Paul says this very clearly, the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 7, he says, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being in, made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Jesus became our substitute. He put himself in a position where he could touch both before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1.20. Romans 8.3, again, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, we couldn't keep it, we didn't want to keep it, it was impossible to do it, we had violated it, and even only in one spot we're guilty of all of it. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he became like a man in that likeness. 
and offering for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, living our life perfectly, following God's law perfectly, giving up himself for us as a substitute and rising again. He satisfied that debt. Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the one who takes God and man and restores peace and friendship and ratifies the covenant and forms a compact and builds a relationship between God and men. He's taken his stand between the offended God and the offending sinner. And he's mediated that by shedding his own blood to bring them together. And then it says this, he gave himself, and that's an important thing to remember. In John chapter 10, it says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And for this reason, verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again, mark it. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The Lord determined that he had the authority to do it, and he came and did that very thing, see. His will perfectly in tune with the Father, he willingly became our substitute. And beloved, let me just say this. If the world takes offense at anything a believer does, this is where it needs to take offense. People ask me all the time, how come you don't talk about issues? How come you talk about, you know, political stuff? You never talk about political stuff. I talk about issues if it has to do with sinfulness. So if there's a law that's passed, it's directly sinful, violates the Word of God, then I'll talk about it. But I'm not, the easiest way for me to offend half the people in here is to begin to talk about politics from the pulpit. If we're going to offend anybody, let it be that God is the only God and Jesus is the only mediator. You understand? That is definitely going to offend a lot of people. But if you're going to teach that, that's going to penetrate the heart of the person, right? It's sharper. The word is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing us under the soul and spirit and the joint and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You got it? If you're going to be offensive, let it be there. Everywhere else, live in peace. Let people see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's where it's going to be offensive. But you have to take a stand here, okay? You can't just waffle around and just say, you know, I want you to know my God as if there's other gods. How about the only God? I'd like you to know the only true God who represented himself perfectly in Jesus on the earth and gave himself a ransom for you because you are a sinful person as I was. And the Lord has made a way for me to be redeemed. That's the offensive part of Christianity, and that's the part you can't leave out. But in everything else, don't be offensive. As much as it depends on you, what? Live at peace with all men. This is the place where you're going to go crossways with people. This is also the place where it really matters. And they may reject that statement. If you've witnessed enough, you know there'll be plenty of people who are going to reject that statement. It doesn't matter because do you know what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody, regardless of your worldview, no matter what you think you know, how it, wherever you landed, you will bow your knee. Why? Because that's the correct name and that's the correct position and there aren't any other ones. And everything we do in corporate prayer in the church and trickling down into our own private life is going from this expanding prayer life that's taking in men everywhere and leaders and all who are in authority and all so that the situation can be in such a place that the church can be powerful. And why is it all praying for that? So that we can go out and represent the one true God and his mediator, Jesus Christ. Because it's not God's will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. And that's our little part that we're praying, playing right here. We start with prayer.
That's why in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we see, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby men must be saved. Only one. The same, the same message all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, it never has changed. There's only one. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is, look, we pray for all men because God wants all men to be saved, and God is the only one who can do it, and Christ is the only mediator through which it can be done, and that men can come to salvation. This payment is effectual for all who believe. In fact, as Paul says later in, in 1, or 1 Timothy 4.9, he says, it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. When you finally catch this understanding, you begin to pray this way, you begin to live this way, ministry's hard. What's a trustworthy statement? When people say, man, that's hard. Yes, it's hard to take the cross and follow Christ, right? It's hard to lose your life and find it. It's hard to seek first the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. This is a faithful saying. It's for this that we labor and strive. For we serve the God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Yeah, and it's faithful saying to say that. What a joy it is then to think about that, right? We want to be found where we need to be, beloved. I, I, can't, I can't say that enough. We don't want to, be, to follow just kind of this wave of a move from the, with the church over towards the world to begin to be more pleasing to the world. You can't be a church that's pleasing to Christ if you're designing your service to be pleasing to the world, okay? It's not possible. You can't please the world and then please Christ because you're going to have a bunch of Christians who are so carnal, they have no idea what they should believe and how they should act. They have their own personal Jesus. This little bit that they accept, this is good, right? My own personal Jesus, and this is what I like, but I'm not going to do this other thing because that, that kind of encroaches on my life too much. I want to have just enough of my understanding of Jesus that I can be happy with myself. See, listen, you can't please the world and please Christ. There's going to be some exclusivity in the message. And then we live that way, see? We live that way. Winsomely, with grace, knowing how we should answer all men, Right? But knowing what we believe, we can't be waffling back and forth on that. And it's going to impact what you, you do and what you say. And so really, in a very real sense, as we get this, as Paul's directing Ephesus, we get this unparalleled expression of the evangelistic model. And what does it start with? It starts with prayer. The evangelistic model starts with prayer. Going into all the world and preaching the gospel starts with prayer. And having a burden for all men and leaders and all in authority everywhere, right? That's where, you, that's where the whole thing is going to start. That's your foundation. If you're still praying these little prayers that's just right in front of you, you're not thinking about the world. You're also not thinking about being an evangelist. But that's our job. It's our purpose, why we were created, why we were left here. So a wonderful evangelistic model, the one that is so, so important. direct us to live a life of prayer and evangelism. Church corporate prayer time and our public worship is to take on these characteristics. And Paul has to reiterate this message because it's not going on like it should be in Ephesus. And I would say in the general church now either. The desire of God who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth is to be our desire. We're called to be lifesavers what a joy it is to be picked so unworthy of that. So as we think about the substitution, we think about the mediator, one mediator, this God who is a God who saves. He's the only God who does. This is a great segue into the time around the table.
So I'd like you to bow with me and kind of move our hearts in that direction. Father, we thank you today in your holiness and your justness and your faithfulness and your separation from us that you bridge the gap through Jesus. Your purposes in all of that was to redeem a fallen world, and we're so grateful that we could come with nothing and get everything. Emptying ourselves and admitting to all of our fault and, been, and then through Jesus' uh, payment on the cross to be able to come into close fellowship, to call you Father. If today you've not done that, if you, you sit here today and I've talked about a lot of things, you perhaps know some of these things, but the connection between yourself and your own fallenness and your sinfulness and God's purposes for the world through Christ's offering, have um, you've missed that. Today can be the day. Confess and repent, calling on Jesus who is Lord to save you. He is quick to do that. He paid the price and proved it was sufficient by rising from the dead. Death had no hold on him. Death can no longer have any hold on you when you come to faith. Call on him. Confess him as Lord. Romans 10.9 and 10 says, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Today can be the day. And I say that today because we're about to take the table, and if you're unredeemed, you can't take it. You shouldn't take it. It's not something that has any meaning to you. In fact, it brings you into more condemnation because you understand some part of it and then are claiming to know all of it. So, Father, today we pray uh, and we thank you for this time in the Word. We thank you for a refocus of our corporate, our corporate worship, our prayer time, as we think about not only just our own church, but on out from us. We pray for churches everywhere and for believers in all parts of the world as they go out, help them to understand these purposes that you've set aside for us from before the foundation of the world, that you've given us a purpose to live for, and we start that purpose with prayer. Help that to be our case, too. And Father, as we approach the table today, we want to come in a worthy manner, and so we, we start becoming introspective, which is just really the habit of, I think, all of our life as we come before your throne in prayer. We want to come realizing we're destitute, realizing we're in need of forgiveness. We offer it to everyone so we can get it from you, and Lord, we pray that um, this fellowship type of relationship is what we desire. There's some benefit to coming around the table, Father. We understand that from your word, and we wish to celebrate that benefit. We really want to have it as a benefit. It's possible to miss it. And so, Father, I pray as we begin to conform then our thoughts around the table, it'll be a time where we can come close. It's your desire that we draw near. You haven't moved. We thank you for this and pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.